As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities all right volume two of the cat and jethro cannibal collection just in time for the holidays this is dark we actually got a mushroom gravy mix as well as an onion gravy mix mm-hmm both of which we're going to mix together. Uh, so this episode, think of it as being as dark as our gravy. <laughs> the mashed potatoes are done, and uh, you've rolled out the pie crust. Now you're peeling apples to get ready to make an apple pie. Yeah, but you have to take over carrots if I'm going to go to apples. All right, okay, I'll do the carrots. While we're listening to this, our first story. We're going back in time to that ship that was frozen into the ice where Nicolas Cage found the (laughs) Declaration of Independence. No, no. But we are going to uh, talk a little bit about the Franklin Expedition. It was a beautiful crystal clear morning back in 1986 when Brian Spensley looked directly into the eyes of his great, great uncle. His great, great uncle at that point had been dead for over 140 years. Oh, that sounds creepy. Spenceley's uh, uncle was John Hartnell. He was a member of the Franklin Expedition. Oh. That was to discover the Northwest Passage back in uh, 1845. Hartnell was buried along with John Torrington and William Brain on Beachy Island. Beachy Island is located in the Northwest Canadian Territories, extremely remote, extremely cold. So was his great-great-uncle frozen? Yes. He perished. They, you know, the whole expedition Mm. perished. And several of them early on were buried in the permafrost. It's been known for a long time where these graves are. But what happens to your eyeballs when you freeze? We'll get to that. Oh. Back in May of 1845, John Franklin, who was a British naval officer, and his crew set sail on the ill-fated expedition to discover the Northwest Passage. It ended up being the deadliest polar expedition in history. Mm. 129 men were on board two different ships, the uh, HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. 
None of them returned home. Because they froze in the ice and... That's how National Treasure starts? Well, it's it's a very similar story to National Treasure. (laughs) In April uh, 1848, the members of the Franklin Expedition were essentially, they had given up all hope of discovering the Northwest Passage. Both of the ships had been frozen in the ice for nearly two years. Wow. During that time, almost two dozen men, including Franklin himself, died. So at this point, the surviving crew members realized that uh, their only hope was to rescue themselves. So the 105 remaining men collected uh, things that they felt that they needed, foodstuffs and clothing, (laughs) and abandoned ship. I'm sorry. I just can't help but think about when we lost power this winter and we had to hook up the generator, which could only run a few things. And we were like, we have to plug in only the essential things. And you plugged in our 12 foot Christmas tree. It was essential. (laughs) Like, like what would you pack? And you'd be like, I need this to live. Well, it's interesting that you, uh, you mentioned that because one of the things they took was extremely weird. And I'll get to that. But this expedition ended in disaster. As I mentioned, every one of them died. And there's evidence to suggest that many of them resorted to cannibalism Mm -hmm. during this deadly trek. Um, There are very few written records and there were no survivors. So the fate of the expedition became one of the biggest mysteries in the history of Arctic exploration. Uh, But over the past 160 and 170 years or so, new evidence is beginning to emerge. Different artifacts have been found. Bones have been found. In 2014, the HMS Erebus was located. Wow. And in 2016, the terror was located. It had been crushed by the ice and Mm. sunk in a harbor off King William's Island. The bone fragments that were found showed to have a higher than normal lead content. Ah, yes. Researchers wanted to know why and if this lead had accelerated their their death. The thought was that the lead um, had been used as solder to seal the cans of, of food. And yeah, at the time, food. yeah, at the time, canned food was cutting edge technology. Right. But compounding that, the containers were lined with a lead foil. Lead was also used in food coloring, tobacco products, pewter tableware, and they even had lead wicked candles. So just about every way that they could introduce it to their body, they were introducing it to their body. Yes. The thought was that the lead poisoning compounded by the effects of scurvy could have been like a lethal cocktail for the Franklin crew. Uh, Testing the bones in the skeletal remains couldn't completely be trusted because the lead content in the bones, the bones had been exposed to the surface and the lead content could have been a result of the lifetime exposure of the bones to the elements. And Oh, they would have been contaminated by their surroundings. So the theory could only be tested by a forensic examination of the preserved soft tissues of the victims. Now, I mentioned earlier that they... uh, 105 of the men loaded up some rescue boats with supplies mm-hmm. and kind of dredged them across the uh, the ice uh, looking for help. One of the weird things they took was a piano. <laughs> they took their piano. And this, this has led researchers to think that uh, the lead poisoning was really not working out for them too well. It was affecting their mental capacity, which would have made it nearly impossible um, to to get out of there alive, even if they didn't have scurvy and were uh, suffering from the physical effects of lead poisoning. Mentally, they weren't capable of maybe, dealing with it. Maybe they just thought that having a piano with them would keep their spirits up. <laughs> maybe. 
Ensign, a little piano music while we eat the first mate. A little dinnertime piano music while you're eating the crew is always good for the digestion. So this is why they decided to open the graves of these three buried crewmen on Beachy Island. Now, the location of the graves have been known since the 1850s, when the original search party found them. In fact, they had uh, exhumed them and then put them back. So they're getting ready to do this. It was a coincidence that the University of Alberta archaeologist Owen Beatty ran into Brian Spensley at uh, Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Spensley at the time was a physics professor. He was also aware that he had an ancestor that was buried in the permafrost uh, that had been part of the doomed Franklin expedition. So Beatty thought it'd be a good idea to bring him along for a couple of reasons. Number one, it'd be cool to have, you know, a descendant there. Mm. Um, Also, he was an academic. And at this point, The major exposure this expedition was getting was in the National Enquirer. So it was being really sensationalized. And he wanted to give it a little bit more credibility. So off they went. Now, the victims had been buried right after death in the frozen ground, and chipping through the permafrost proved no easy task. Uh, They used pickaxes and got down as far as they could when they started to, you know, see the the remains of the coffin. And then they had to use gallons and gallons of hot water to pour over the coffins to thaw them out. And you can imagine how much time that must have taken, Mm. you know, boiling water in the Arctic. I've done that many times on our front steps. Uh, because the ice will build up on the steps and the dogs can't make their way down. So I'll just tea kettle after tea kettle of (laughs) boiling water. (laughs) Oh, Maine. So after many hours of hard work, they came face to face with these men who had died more than 140 years earlier. They were perfectly preserved. Having been frozen in the permafrost, almost no decay had taken place. Their clothing was perfectly preserved. They literally looked like they could have died just a, a few days prior. Wow. Spensley's great-great-uncle, John Hartnell's coffin, was covered in a blue cloth. Hartnell was 25 years old when he perished. He was a petty officer aboard the Erebus, and he died in the winter of 1846. Franklin's crew, they did not have brass hardware for handles for the coffin, so they made fake ones out of tape. They just taped what looked like handles to the side Aww. of the coffin. It appeared as though he was he was beloved. Uh, they had dressed him in a clean shirt. They had made a pillow out of uh, wood shavings for him. John's coffin had been broken, and some of the cloth had been cut away by the search party in in the 1850s. It was thought that that maybe that was a was taken as a a souvenir. Gross. The coffins of both William Brain and John Torrington had brass nameplates, but Hartnell's casket's brass nameplate was missing, and that was suspected to have been taken by the 1850 search party as well. <clears throat> John Hartnell's hands were perfectly preserved in the permafrost. The initials T.H. were embroidered on his shirt, and that led researchers to believe that uh, he had been dressed in the shirt of his younger brother, Thomas, to be buried. Spensley stood there with his camera the moment he came face to face with his maternal great-great-uncle. He recognized, he said, the long nose characteristics of his grandmother and other relatives. Aww. Hartnell's hair was perfectly preserved, and as was his beard, and it looked as though they were, they were black, but further investigation revealed that they were red, and Spensley said this made him think of his family connection. Quote, both my brother and sister had red hair. 
So again, John's body was perfectly preserved, but there were scars from an, an autopsy that was likely conducted by the ship's doctor. As Spenceley took photos, he looked at the face of his lost uncle and realized, quote, that nobody there had previously been in my situation of literally looking in the eyes of a relative of a great, great uncle who had been dead for 140 years. Mm. There was not so much emotion until we came to reburying him. And then it was an overwhelming sadness as if he had just died and knowing I would never see him again. It was determined after the examination that Hartnell likely died from a combination of tuberculosis from living in cramped uh, quarters mm. on the boat and lead poisoning from the tin cans. Beatty concluded that the slow assault on the crew's brains and bodies from lead poisoning likely played a major role in the expedition's failure. Right. But we are still learning things about the Franklin expedition. Again, that was back in the 80s. More recently, in 2013, Canadian researchers from the University of Waterloo, Lakehead University, and Trent University excavated a collection of bones, and they began to extract DNA and encouraged known descendants of the sailors to submit DNA samples to them in order to identify the, the remains. And they recently got their first match. One of the skulls that was found on the surface is known to belong to a man named John Gregory, who was an engineer on the Erebus. He was in his mid-40s when he took his last voyage. His direct paternal descendant, Jonathan Gregory, lives in Port Elizabeth in South Africa. Wow. Now, he had heard for years that uh, he had a family member that was on the Franklin expedition, but he didn't know for sure. So he just sent a sample after he heard about it from a relative who lived in British Columbia. He wasn't exactly sure if he was related to anyone or if it was just family lore. Mm. He said, quote, Having John Gregory's remains being the first to be identified by genetic analysis is an incredible day for our family, as well as all of those interested in the ill-fated Franklin expedition. The whole Gregory family is extremely grateful to the entire research team for their dedication and hard work, which is so crucial to unlocking pieces of history that have been frozen in time for so long. Now, the family knows not only that Gregory was among the 105 men who set off in search of a rescue. But they know basically where he died, on the shores of Erebus Bay, along the southwest coast of King William Island, almost 50 miles south of where the ships were abandoned. Wow. They had made it 50 miles. Well, he made it 50 miles. The research team is still hoping to find matches for DNA samples taken from 26 other victims' remains. Even though it's been more than 175 years now since the doomed expedition, we're still finding more pieces of the puzzle and the story of really what happened is beginning to take shape. Now, I got all my information from Mental Floss, Smithsonian Magazine, the BBC, Wikipedia, and Maclean's, and it is just to me fascinating that all of these years have passed, and this has been such a big mystery that now modern science is being able to uncover some of these facts and we're putting the pieces together. Right. It's incredible what DNA is is doing to the way that we research so many things. I mean, from murders and piano boats. <laughs> it's, it is remarkable. 
You know, it's interesting. We haven't made mention of this yet, but when we did choose 10 topics on cannibalism, mm. 10 episodes, 10 stories on cannibalism, nine of them were stories that I did and you did one. Yeah. 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 How can I possibly find time to weave in a cannibal story <laughs> when you're talking about it every three weeks? Yeah, I know. I love a good cannibal story. Uh, that really is not so much a cannibal story. I mean, there was cannibalism in it. The most amazing part of that story for me is the uh, when they when they dug those guys up, they looked legitimately like they just passed away. The most amazing thing for me was the piano. Yeah, moving the piano. It's wild. Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> that must have been almost ethereal. Can you imagine if you're like, I don't know, native people that live in that area and you're out on the frozen uh, ice looking for seals or something and you just hear this piano music coming over the horizon? Is that Mozart? Maybe the Aurora Borealis is out. Oh, that would have been weird. Anyway, next story. What is it? It's a guy who made his living eating stuff. Oh, Terrer. Arthur, the gruff but lovable uh, convenience store worker, apparently listens. It's a little corner store in our neighborhood in Maine. Oh. And, uh, you know, he's a typical Mainer. Sure. He goes, geez, some crow there, bub. Is it true the missus is a cannibal? And I said, no, no, she's not a cannibal. We did the Ancestry.com DNA thing, and she has ancestors from Papua New Guinea that were cannibals. Not cat. she's a vegetarian. It's just, I find that ironic and amusing that, mm -hmm. you know, she's a vegetarian cannibal ancestor. <laughs> so I just want to, you know, first of all, I want to make clear that you are not currently a cannibal. I'm uh, not currently a cannibal. But that story seems to have been twisted around a little yeah. bit. Well, you keep mentioning it. Like, over and over again. And I can see how it would get confusing for people, because you're all like, mm, cannibal, meh. All right. That's not... Well, I think I I've mean, set the record straight now. Okay, good. All right. Also, I love you, West Virginia. Almost heaven, West Virginia. Blue Ridge Mountain, Shenandoah River. The Gospel According to John Denver, everyone. John Denver. Yes. Yeah. Rest, rest in peace. Um, how is Corner Store Guy doing, anyway? Didn't he have Arthur? to have like Arthur? a knee replaced or something? Yeah, yes, he did. Yeah, and I think it was a hip. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he yeah. He, uh, he said he was his new rapper name was going to be Busta Hip. <laughs> only, oh, only Arthur. said it like that, Bob. Oh, Arthur. Arthur. Today I'm going to tell you about Terrer. 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 It's a French word. I'm I'm trying to pronounce it authentically. Terrer. Terrer. So terre. I'm guessing it's, it's got something to do with earth, it's, ground. Well, no, it's T A. R-R-A-R-E. Oh. Terrer. It's um, the name of a French showman and soldier from the late 1700s who had incredibly unusual eating habits. <gasps> I've heard of this guy. You have? Yeah, he was the guy that couldn't stop eating, right? I mean, he yeah. ate like, I mean, okay, tell me, yeah. tell, tell me the story. All right. Oh, this is so good. I'm so excited. This guy was able to eat vast amounts of meat to the point where it just got ridiculous. In fact, he could eat one quarter of a cow carcass in a day. What? He traveled France in the company of a, a band of thieves, according to Wikipedia. Thieves and prostitutes before becoming the warm-up act to a traveling charlatan. He'd swallow corks, stones, live animals... And a whole basket full of apples. You can't just throw in live animals like it's not the worst thing you've ever heard in your life. That's horrendous. 
Like, would he swallow them whole or did he chew? Uh, it, it, it I, sounds like he swallowed them whole. Oh, God. One time he ate a live eel. No. He just swallowed it live. Oh. He was born in Rouen, France in 1772. As a child, he had uh, this insatiable appetite. And by his teens, that's when he was uh, able to eat a quarter of a cow in a single day. About this time, uh, his parents, uh, they decided, you know what? We can't afford this. Yeah, get out. Get the heck out of here. So he had to leave home. And for years, he uh, toured the country with a roaming band of thieves and prostitutes, begging and stealing food. And then he gained his... Uh, his weight? No, he never gained weight. He weighed 80 pounds. That doesn't make any sense. 80 to 100 pounds. He toured the country with, uh, you know, that uh, traveling charlatan that I mentioned. Crowds would uh, would be drawn by him eating corks and anything he could find lying in the gutter. Then he thought he should be like the star of the show, not the warm-up act. So he, he moved to Paris and he worked as a street entertainer. Just eating things? Yeah, just out of the gutter. His appearance was just kind of creepy. He had an abnormally wide mouth in which his teeth were heavily stained. He didn't appear to have any lips. And when he had not eaten, the skin hung so loosely around his stomach that he could wrap it around his waist. And when he was full, his abdomen was distended like a huge balloon. But he didn't feel full or? Yeah, I guess not. His body was also hot to the touch and he sweated heavily. That must have been how he didn't gain weight as he must have had like a crazy metabolism or something. That's that's an interesting hypothesis. He also suffered from extremely foul body odor. I would imagine he's eating garbage out of the gutter in the late 1700s, France. He was described as stinking, quote, to such a degree it could not be endured within the distance of 20 paces. And it would get noticeably worse after he ate. His eyes and cheeks would become bloodshot. And you could actually see a physical vapor coming off of him. What? Yeah. After he would eat, he'd become extremely lethargic. Well, yeah, as, I mean, I get that. eating a cow will do. Yeah. And again, as despite the large intake of food, he never seemed to vomit or gain weight. He did have diarrhea his entire life, constantly, which probably also added to the... Uh, the smell. The smell and the yeah. lack of weight gain. I mean, he's got some sort of irritable bowel syndrome he's probably dealing with, <laughs> uh, which is understandable. I suffer from it as well, but you can get within 20 paces of me. I wonder if maybe... I wonder if... Like, what came first? Because maybe he something happened or was going on inside his bits, and he didn't digest right. Like, maybe he had a blockage or something, maybe something. And so maybe the two things kind of fed off of each other. So, maybe. Yeah. It could be. I don't know. Fed off each other. <laughs> yeah. he, he did have an intestinal blockage at one point. We'll uh -huh. get to that. Uh -huh. He then enlisted in the military service. But yeah. As a spy... Oh. And they used him but, they used him to smuggle notes across the uh, front. He would of course swallow them mm -hmm. and then he'd get to the front and then he'd fish them out of his stool and hand them to the general in charge. Here you go, sir. Here's a feces laden note. No, and you know he always had diarrhea, so yep. I mean it's not like And they didn't have plastic bags back then. It So yeah. That's not I don't, sanitary. No. I guess what they did, because they didn't have plastic bags, is uh, they would put it in a little wooden box, and he'd swallow the whole box. 
After about 30 hours, the box would emerge and... The box would emerge. The general, the general who received him was, quote, furious when the documents had been delivered because uh, they contained vital intelligence and apparently pieces of corn. No. Um, and, you know, just so badly stained and it just... Ugh. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it, uh, it's very upsetting. I also feel like maybe spies should be a bit more inconspicuous. So here's, yeah, I would agree with that. There was one time where he was captured before he was able to excrete the wooden box. Mm -hmm. And he did after it within in capture and in order to keep the. uh, No. Yeah. No. Yep. He ate his stool. And the box so that it couldn't be, you know, it was vital information, sweetie. He did what he had to do, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, jeez. That's, uh... Following that incident, uh, Terer was uh, desperate to avoid further military service, sure. understandably, and yeah. uh, returned to the hospital. He wanted to be cured from this. So they treated him with uh, laudanum without success. Uh, further treatments, we, they used... <laughs> that was the solution for everything. For everything. Oh, yeah. you eat too much? Try some laudanum. Headaches? Laudanum. Laudanum addiction? Laudanum. <laughs> Uh, they tried white wine and uh, white wine vinegar, rather, and tobacco pills. That was unsuccessful. And then they would feed him soft-boiled eggs, and that didn't work either. Okay, I'm sorry. If he didn't have diarrhea before, white wine vinegar and tobacco pills? <laughs> and soft-boiled eggs. I mean... Yep, like a fire hose. <laughs> Efforts to keep him on any kind of controlled diet failed because he would sneak out of the hospital and scare and scavenge awful Outside of butcher shops and awful, of course, animal entrails right, and organs and waste leftover. meat. Yeah, yeah. Bits. stuff that's hot in dogs. hot dogs. Yeah, basically. Yeah. He would actually fight stray dogs for the food in the gutters, in the alleys, in the rubbish heaps. Not cool. He was caught several times within the hospital drinking from patients undergoing bloodletting. He would drink the blood. While he was on this in- diet imposed by the hospital, he was so hungry. He was chased out of the morgue several times because he was trying to eat the cadavers. Well, I mean, you're done with that. I suppose, but good Lord. What's amazing to me is they found him in there eating dead people and they still kept him there. Sure. Well, he had some stuff going on with the IBS and dedicated to their craft, healing. Sure. Healing craft. So what did it take for them to kick him out of the hospital? A little bit after the cadaver incident, uh, a 14-month-old child went missing. They never found him. Terea seemed incredibly satisfied gastronomically. There was a big bulge in his stomach and... uh, Like a 14-month-old bulge? Yep. But apparently he ate a baby. That's just rumor, though. They don't know that. They don't. They they never proved it, but they chased him from the hospital. He ate that baby. He did. He uh, He ate that baby. Yeah, I think he did. I think he ate that toddler. That's horrendous. He ate a toddler. He disappeared. He never returned to the hospital. He disappeared for years. Nobody knew where he was. He showed up years later at the hospital, and he contacted the uh, surgeon that had treated him, or the, uh, the doctor, and wished, said he wished to see him. He, um, he was now very bedridden and weak because he had um, tuberculosis. He had developed tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Now, Terer told the surgeon that he thought it was uh, he wasn't feeling well because he swallowed a golden fork that he found in the gutter. 
and he believed it was lodged somewhere inside of him, causing the weakness. He hoped that Percy could find some way, Percy being the surgeon, to remove the golden fork. Percy, however, recognized him suffering from advanced tuberculosis. A month later, Terrier began to suffer from continuous extrudative diarrhea. Look it up. I'm not going to tell you what it is. And then he died afterwards. The corpse decomposed quickly. Most of the surgeons in the hospital said, no, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to do an autopsy. It's no. However, his surgeon wanted to find out if, in fact, uh, he did have a fork in him. And if it was gold, he wanted it. So You he have to do an autopsy on yeah. a man like that. Yeah. So they did. They did an autopsy. They determined that his gullet was abnormally wide. When the jaws were open, the surgeon could see down a broad canal right into his stomach. The body was uh, filled with, in, uh, with uh, infection. His liver and gallbladder were abnormally large. And his stomach was covered with enormous ulcers. Also, it filled most of his abdominal cavity. Well, yeah. The fork was never found, by the way. Excretative diarrhea occurs with the presence of blood and pus in the stool. This occurs with <sighs> inflammatory bowel disease. I told you he had IBS. I didn't want to um, say. Such as Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, and other severe infections such as E. coli or other forms of blood food poisoning. Well, I mean, how could he not have had food poisoning? Well, he had to. All the point. time, probably. <laughs> At one point during his, his uh, treatment, he was boasting that he could eat everything, you know, and anything. And mm -hmm. he told the surgeon, uh, he, he offered to eat the surgeon's gold watch and chain. And the surgeon declined. Sure. I and mean, saying, if no, you thank do, you. If you do, I'm going to cut you open to get it back. That's what he told him. That's a good plan, I think. But he wouldn't go in after that fork. No, he did I go mean, after the fork. He just, just waited until waited, he died. Yeah, waited that's until easier, he, I guess. Yeah, I guess. That is, uh, that's upsetting. That's upsetting. That's the story of Terrer, the yeah. French showman, baby eater. Well, yeah. He had a lot going on there. There was there was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think about there's all these rules. and I mean, I don't. I'm not up to date on the current baby eating ordinances because you're not supposed to. No, I mean, I'm just thinking about like salmonella and stuff, you know, undercooked meats. you got to be real careful. Um, and I, can you get salmonella from baby? I imagine. I don't know. Sure. What the, I don't know. Awful. That is horrible. Like a baby disappeared. There's no way to make that good. No. It's awful. No. Regardless of. It's just, it's so bizarre. Did he and swallow the baby whole? He couldn't. Know. He couldn't have done that. I don't know. I mean, he swallowed the eel whole. The Ziggy Zoggy guy from the Man Show who used to yep. just like right. drink the beer because yeah. he had the, one of those open gullet things. The fox. Yeah. 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 I wonder if that's the same kind of condition. Could be. Do you think the fox man had? Um, I don't think he ever ate a baby. No. But he is dead now. That's true. Mm. Well, that was upsetting. I told you it would be. Delightful, but terribly <laughs> upsetting. He was a complicated individual. Mm. Yeah. I choose to believe he's, he didn't eat babies. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that's true. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, If you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings, while kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. The Box of Oddities. With Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Apples are peeled. What do you put in in your apples to make it so delicious when you make a pie? It's a shitload of sugar. Shitload of sugar. So there you have it. (laughs) That's my magic recipe. Mm -hmm. Shitload of sugar and apples. I love it. Something tells me sugar would not help (laughs) with uh, this guy's situation. It's uh, not cool. No. But this one does have one of my favorite titles, though. (laughs) Yes, it reminds me of like a National Enquirer headline. Worst son ever eats dad's heart! Exclamation point. Today I wanted to talk about Pedro Rodriguez Filo. Okay. Are you familiar? No, no I am not. Um, His nickname is... uh, Pedrino Matador, or Killer Petey. Killer Petey. He was born on a farm in Brazil in 1954. He actually was born with an injured skull, which was the result of beatings that his father had inflicted upon his mother while mom was pregnant. Oh, my God. And um, 
the horrible relationship, a horrible thing to to be born into, didn't have a lot working for him from the very beginning. So Pedro committed his first murder when he was 14 years old. Pedro's dad had been fired from his job by the town's vice mayor. And um, the, his dad had been working as a school guard and he had allegedly stolen food from the school. So Pedro shot the vice mayor in front of City Hall with a shotgun. When he was 14? When he was 14. Wow. Pedro became very famous throughout his life and let's call it criminal career for targeting victims who, for the most part, weren't just average everyday people. Uh, Described by one analyst as the perfect psychopath, Pedro went after other criminals and those who he believed to have wronged him. Uh, I'm sorry. Did you say what, what year this was? Well, he was born in 1954. Okay. All right. So late 60s was when he began his murderous killing spree. His second murder wasn't much long after his first. Uh, He went on to murder another guard who was supposedly the actual food thief. So his dad was accused of stealing food, so he was fired. Um, So he killed the guy that fired his dad and then the guy who supposedly was the actual food thief. Wow, he's thorough. So he moved to uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil and got into some light burglary. And um, Which, by the way, has one third less calories than your regular burglary. <laughs> but just as much flavor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then he killed a drug dealer. Then he met a lady who he fell for hard. Her name was Maria Apercida Olympia. And the two lived together until she was killed by gang members. Uh-oh. This spurred a bit of a spree for Pedro, who, to revenge her death, murdered and tortured several people in an attempt to find out the identity of the gangster who killed Olympia. And the word is that he had 10 kills under his belt before he was 18 years oh old. Oh, my God. Right? I try me? to think about the things that I did before I was 18. And... I was biting my nails. I mean, I had gotten out of a few speeding tickets at that point. It's pretty That's pretty much, much the it. extent yeah. of it. Yeah. I left the garage door open when we lived in Arizona and javelinas came in and, and ate our trash. I think it's so cool that you had javelinas come into your home. Oh, I'll tell I love that. them. I'll tell that story one time. Okay. How I was, I was chased through the desert by wild pigs. <laughs> it was a good day. You're so lucky. <laughs> I didn't think so. Um, They're mean. So Philo's father, as we talked about, not nice, not a great guy, very abusive to uh, his mom. And he eventually ended up murdering Pedro's mother with a machete. Um, so he was doing time at a local prison. And Pedro visited his father in jail where he killed him by stabbing him 22 times. He killed his father. He killed his father because his father killed his mother. I see. But he killed the principal, the vice principal, for firing him. Right. Because... He's just writing wrongs. Oh, uh, yeah. He's like Sam Beckett. do 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 you know, quantum leap style. Quantum leap, yeah. Anyway. Hit him up quantum leap style. So he killed his dad by stabbing him 22 times. But then 
he cut out a piece of his heart and chewed on it for a while before he spit it out and threw the rest away. Well, that's wasteful. I feel like that was just, it was his way of working through some big feelings. (laughs) Yeah. So he takes a big bite out of his dad's heart, sticks it between his cheek and gum like a plug of chaw. What you got in there? Some skull? Dad. So Pedro was arrested May 24th, 1973, and he was placed placed in a police car with two other criminals, including a rapist. And when they got to the police station, uh, they opened the car door and discovered that Pedro had killed the rapist in the back of the police car. Then he was sentenced to prison. He killed at least four more inmates while incarcerated. And it's reported that the convicts that Philo killed while incarcerated were those that he felt deserved retribution. Okay. Going back to the ride to the police station sure. with killer PD yes. and the rapist, there was another person in the backseat too, uh-huh. and he didn't kill the other person. No. Can you imagine being that guy? Yeah. Just sitting there going, uh, after the other guy's dead, looking over at PD, uh, got, got any gum? Um, yeah. See that moon? You, 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 you seem nice. It's a big one, huh? You getting enough air over there, Petey? In most cases, Philo targeted various kinds of criminals. He would find them by looking up their names and addresses before brutally killing them in a variety of ways, though he stated that his favorite way to murder criminals was by stabbing and or hacking them to death with blades. Uh, He was usually spurred to act after hearing that a specific crime had been committed. And the specifics as to what he felt was a murderable offense. Punishable by death. I don't know. Oh, my God. Uh, But in 2003, he was sentenced to 128 years in prison. But Brazilian law prohibits anyone spending more than 30 years behind bars. So due to the crimes committed inside the prison, his sentence was changed. At one point, he was sentenced to 400 years in prison, but he was released after 34 years. So he was he spent the 30 years that they allow, Mm -hmm. and then he was sentenced to an additional four years for those murders that he committed while in prison. So 34 years served in prison. Wow. So he served 34 years in prison. Mm Mm-hmm. And by the time he got out, he was 50. Is that right? You said he was born in 54. Uh Uh-huh. He got out in 2004? 2007. Oh, okay. All right. So 53. He's got plenty of good killing years left. Well, he was arrested again at his home in September of 2011. Of course he was. And convicted of false imprisonment and um, starting a riot. He admitted that the only reason he wanted to be out of prison was because he had a lady outside of prison. Uh, But he was sentenced to 128 years in prison for the charges of uh, false imprisonment and starting a riot. So um, that doesn't exactly make sense that he served 34 years for multiple murders and then was sentenced to 128 years for false imprisonment and starting a riot. Times change. But I do think that probably who he was and his his previous history might have played a part into <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. Um, he currently remains incarcerated. 
in case you're curious, and his total confirmed victims, though he claims he's killed over 100, his total confirmed victims are 71. Good God in heaven. He is Brazil's most prolific serial murderer um, and also known as the killer of killers. Killer of killers. And, and, and he preferred to stab them. Right. Or hack at them. So he was he was really quite hands on. So there you go. That's Pedro Rodriguez Filo. What would it be like to be his cellmate? I don't think I'd sleep well. Well, I mean, he tends to be pretty like, uh, he gets right on it, yeah. you know? So uh, if you make it past a few days, I think as long as you, you stay cool with him, right. you're going to be okay. Maybe it's a good thing because if somebody wrongs you as his cellmate, maybe ah. he would see that as a slight and... Protect you. Other people wouldn't mess with you as right. much. Yeah. yeah. You want to find the right person to kind of align with. It's it's like Survivor. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an amazing reality show. <laughs> they just put random people in the cell with this guy and see what happens. I don't. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, obviously, I'm not making light of the fact that this guy murdered a bunch of people. It's just fascinating how that kind of brain will find the justifications mm -hmm. and say, like, this is okay. This is, yeah. you know, yeah. but, and his brain obviously had a lot of business going on due to that frontal lobe injury. Sure. Anyway. Fascinating stuff. Thanks for sharing. Ooh. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We're really ramping it up. Um, it's only going to get worse from here, too. It's true. Yeah. This is one of the stories that sticks with me and I think about pretty regularly. It mm -hmm. is rough and again if if you're like almost done cooking you know you don't have to you don't have to keep listening <laughs> that's that's a great lead-in <laughs> my story is um it's about a woman named Catherine knight have you heard this name before Catherine knight our australian listeners are going to know who I'm talking about. She was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole after perhaps one of the most grisly murders in the history of Australia. She murdered her partner, Charles Thomas Price, in October of 2001. Currently imprisoned in the Silverwater Women's Correctional Center in New South Wales, she stabbed Price to death, but there's so much more to the story. I don't think I know this story. Please tell me. Well, all right, I will. Oh, good. Yeah, because it would be silly for me to just end there. So I got my information from Wikipedia, All Things Interesting, and Ranker. Now, she, Catherine Knight, had a, um, a violent history that goes all the way back to 1973. She was working as a boner in a butcher shop, but I had to pause there because it was just fun to say she was working as a boner. What's a, what's a boner in a butcher shop do? I was working as a boner in, in a, a butcher, butcher shop. shop. She would take the bones out of the uh, animals. Oh, okay. like a D-boner. A D-boner, which is never as good as the A-boner, really. So she's married to this guy, David Kellett, and uh, they didn't get along very well. So he would get drunk and try to beat her up, but she could fight back. She would, uh, she would land a few good punches. And uh, then after that happened, he found himself being dominated by her. Uh, by 1974, uh, she still convinced him to marry her. On their wedding night, after consummating their marriage three times, uh, he fell asleep. And she was 
really pissed by that. She took issue with her husband's premature exhaustion and, and tried to strangle him in his sleep. Oh, my God. On their wedding night. Well, he's never going to be able to do you again if you strangle him. That Those are wise, wise words. Yes, that's a bumper sticker I saw once. He woke up and uh, he, he, I guess he fought her off. And despite the fact that she had attempted to kill him on her wedding night, on their wedding night, uh, the marriage lasted for about 10 more years. They had a couple of daughters. But then at one point, he left her in the middle of the night. He had just had enough. So after he took off, a night went through a period of uh, deep distress. And at one point, she spent, I guess, a few months in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, she had threatened the life of her car mechanic because he had fixed the guy's car that, he, that the guy left in. Oh, so her husband's car? Yeah, she, he had fixed her husband's car, the car that he made his getaway in. And so she threatened the serviceman. Oh, no. Uh, Where are her kids in all of this? I feel awful for those kids. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't say. But um, even after all of that, he came back to her. Oh. But ultimately, they broke up, and uh, she met a guy, uh, David Saunders. And he moved in with her. He had two daughters, but he kept his own apartment, which was, I guess, kind of a bone of contention. No pun intended. Um, she thought that, uh, he wasn't committed to her because he kept this, uh, separate apartment. Sure. And so, and this, this is going to bother you. Okay. This is pretty awful. I'm just going to give you a heads up right now. Did she break his bedside lamps? I wish that was all that she had done at one point to show him what she was capable of doing. Oh no. She, oh no. She took his no. two month old puppy. No. No. Yeah. And, well, you know her vocational history. We'll just leave it at that. Now, despite that particular incident, the that two... That doesn't make me want to stay with a person well, that's not, insane. Not only did he stay, they had a daughter together after that. Why? And oh. then Knight tried to stab him with a pair of scissors. Finally, he left. Did he take the children with him? Yes. Thank you. And uh, she met another man named John Chillingsworth whom she maintained a relationship with for, I guess, like something like three years. And uh, they had a child together. Uh, For the most part, I guess their relationship was fairly typical without issue. No, no, that's uh, I don't believe that that's true because you can't have that kind of personality. You can't have deboned a dog and threatened lives and stabbed and choked and still just have a normal relationship with Chillingsworth, which, by the way, is an awesome name. That is an awesome Not name. Not the point, though. John Chillingsworth. Chillingsworth. Oh, Chillingsworth. Yeah, well, well, this was just initially they were, okay. they were getting along pretty well. He didn't know the history, I guess. Okay. But, but experts say that probably they were getting along well because Knight was having an affair with another person at the same time whose name was John Price. Her relationship with Price would be the one that eventually pushed her over the edge and uh, landed her in in prison. Well, she had done some pretty horrible things up to this point, Mm -hmm. but it got horrible or roller. Oh, okay. (laughs) Now the beginning of their relationship went went pretty well, went okay. They had, uh, Price had two older children who lived with him. How do you spell horrible? H O rubble. Now, Price had two older children who lived with him, and uh, they liked, I guess they liked Knight well enough initially, 
Now, he worked as a miner, so he made good money, which uh, kept Knight, I guess, somewhat sedated. <laughs> it kept her calm. She could spend her time shopping rather than choking people? Yes, yeah. Cool. However, she at one point said that she wanted to get married, and he declined, and so she lost her shit. She ended up getting Price fired from his job, which uh, I guess made him kick her out. So a few months later... She moved back in, though he still refused to marry her. According to uh, friends and and family members and neighbors, uh, this was around the time things really began to escalate. Violent things began to escalate. In early 2000, Price and Knight had an argument. It culminated with Price receiving some superficial chest wounds from her trying to stab him with scissors. So he took out a restraining order against her in an attempt to keep his children safe. Sure. Obviously. He was really, he was he was quite fearful for some time. I have a question. Yeah. During this this bit where with the stabbing of Price, is she still with Chillingsworth? No. Okay. I think he used that, Chillingsworth used that cover to get the fuck out of town. Cool. You know. So sure. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know, but I picture him having a haberdashery. Chillingsworth haberdashery. Mm-hmm. Fine hats and scarves. We also have a deboning service in back. Don't, ew, no. Right. Oh, wait, he would have an Australian accent, wouldn't he? Yeah, and I can't do one. Uh, I can't do any accents other than, you know, my stupid American accent. So I'm really kind of ashamed of even trying to trying to do a Chillingsworth voice. Because I don't even know what accent that would be. Haberdashery. Nope. Oh, I can't do it either. That was almost cockney. Yeah, got real. Drop the H. Abadashri, No, I've got nothing. I'm I'm sorry. Picturing Dick Van Dyke dancing around on chimney tops now. Any hoozle. So Price was pretty fearful for his life. He'd taken out this restraining order. He told people that he worked with that if he was murdered, that it was night. Oh, God, that always creeps me out so much. And indeed, that's exactly what she did. That's awful. Price had come home from work, and he had a usual routine of checking in with neighbors before going to bed at 11 o'clock. I guess uh, Knight had come over shortly before and had made herself dinner. She'd watched TV, she had showered, and then she went upstairs and she woke Price up. And I guess they had sex. What? No. Yeah. Stop that. Stop having sex with people who've tried to kill you. Stop it. That would make a great t-shirt. Stop having sex with people who are trying to kill you. (laughs) Available now in our merch store. (laughs) So after they had sex, Price went back to bed. Then Catherine, who kept a butcher knife next to her bed, took it out and stabbed Price 37 times. While he With was, a butcher knife? While he was sleeping, yes. Isn't that more of a hack than a stab? Well, you're, you're thinking of cleaver. There are lots of deboning knives. That, oh, uh, so a butcher's a knife. A butcher's knife. Rather yes. than a, yeah. okay, what I'm picturing. Yeah, right. You're, you're exactly right. I am picturing a cleaver. So the, the blood evidence June. showed that uh, he woke up while he was being stabbed. No. So about six o'clock the next morning, the neighbors became concerned because Price's car was uh, was still in the driveway, and he had not showed up at work. His employer sent a worker over to see what was wrong. Now, both the neighbor and the worker tried knocking on Price's bedroom window to wake him up, but uh, they alerted police after noticing blood on the front door. Oh, gosh. So police arrived at 8 a.m. They broke down the back door. They found Price's body, and they found Knight 
comatose, lying next to him because she had taken a large number of pills. Now, as I mentioned, according to the blood evidence, uh, he awoke and tried to turn the light on before attempting to escape. Knight chased him through the house. He managed to open the front door and get outside, but either stumbled back inside or she dragged him back down the hallway where he finally died after bleeding out. Later, Knight went to the bank, withdrew $1,000 from Price's ATM account. Price's autopsy revealed he'd been stabbed 37 times in both the front and back of his body. Many of the wounds were extended to vital organs. Several hours after Price had died, Knight skinned him and hung the skin from a meat hook from the middle of a doorway. Yes, okay, yes, I had heard of this story. This is awful. Yeah. This is awful. Yep. And the, the um, yeah, in the, oh, the poor policeman. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Yep. She then decapitated Price oh. and cooked parts of his body. Yeah. Serving up the meat with baked potato, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. She apparently tried some of it, didn't like it, threw it out into the yard. She put his head in a pot and was stewing it. There's so much going on there. Oh, that's rough. She then arranged his body with his left arm. Now, this is a skinned, headless corpse, mm-hmm. okay? She she draped his left arm over an empty uh, 1.25 liter soft drink bottle with his legs crossed. So the police showed up and they see all of this stuff, right? Yeah. And it's it's pretty freaky. They find a note that said uh, she tried to like blame. She tried to make it sound like she killed him because he was uh, molesting the children. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, time. It said time got you back, Jonathan, for raping, and she misspelled rape. My daughter, and she misspelled daughter. Uh, you to Beck for Ross, whatever that means for little John. Now play with little John's dick, John Price. Said in context. Um, the accusations in this in the note were found to be groundless. Yeah, no. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you'd eat his bits with squash. If that had gone on, I totally understand uh, certain behaviors. Yes, but not the eating his bits with squash. Do you know what I mean? I hate squash. I know you do. I know you do. So the police are there. They see this horrible, horrible scene. <laughs> and, I, you know, again, you mentioned that poor police officer. I can't imagine. You walk in, you see a human carcass, skinned human carcass hanging from a door frame on a meat hook. Well, I think the, the skin's not the carcass, right? The carcass. Yeah, you're was, right. You're right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's just the skin. What it's a, what's the word I'm looking for? Pelt. Yes. Yeah. A human pelt. Like an egger suit. Egger. Egger. suit. Egger. He's asking for sugar water. We're in an egger suit. <laughs> so you've got the, you know, the human pelt hanging in the doorway. Mm. You've got the skinned carcass uh, with no head sitting uh, at the table with his arm draped over a soda pop bottle. You got a, a head in a pot. You got a head in a pot and, the, and it's on simmer. Oh, I bet that smelled awful. You know, because we don't even like it when. People cook regular meat here. I don't like it if like I'm making eggs and a little bit of egg falls on the burner. No. I hate that smell. So then they go out into the dining room, the police. And on the table, no. they found two full plates Aww. of this stew that she had made with John Price. And each place setting had a name on it. Was it the kids? Yes. She was planning on feeding him to his kids. 
<sighs> yep. But she didn't like it. She threw it out in the yard. So, I mean, that's just rude. Yeah, don't don't waste your food. No, I mean, you don't feed something to other people that you yourself are not going to, willing to eat. <laughs> I don't, like, have guests over and they'll go, oh, here's this garbage cheese. I don't want this. You eat it. It's tacky. So she goes to trial. They arrest her. She goes to trial. Knight's initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected, and she was arraigned on March 2nd of 2001 on the, charges, charging, on the charge of murdering Price. She entered a plea of not guilty. Uh, how? How? That just right there shows that she's got some things going on. Yeah. Well, like, it, not a grasp on reality. On November 8th, Justice O'Keefe... What a great name. Uh, pointed out that the nature of the crime and Knight's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced her to life in prison, uh, refused to fix a non-parole period, and ordered that her papers be marked never to be released. And that's where she sits today wow. in New South Wales in the Stillwater Women's Correctional Center. Whoa. That was... That's intense. That was a story. Yeah. yeah. I feel a little upset right now. I mean, how could you not be? I mean, oh my God, it's one thing to murder somebody. That's horrible. But when you defile the corpse like that, and then you have plans on feeding the corpse to the victim's children, how evil is that? Right. And those police officers who had to deal with, I just feel like that's got to stay with you forever. And, oh, gosh. Yeah, that's horrible. Yep. Horrible. There are just so many layers of that story that are so wildly upsetting. And yet fascinating from the perspective of how a person's brain works. How do they come to those decisions? You know what would be a good idea? I should kill that guy and feed him to his kids. Yeah. I mean, I think about like my stepmother used to make reference to me being overweight. And I was like, you're the worst. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. no, not not really. No. Doing no. OK. Yep. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. That brings us to our final story. Oof, does not get better. This one, titled, Suitcase Full of Bits. On the afternoon of June 12, 1981, a Japanese man named Esi Sagawa walked into the woods outside of Paris, France, carrying two suitcases. He strolled casually to a lake, proceeded to empty the contents into the lake. He was noticed by nearby people who thought, that looks suspicious. It was bodies, wasn't it? It wasn't, it wasn't, bodies. It wasn't bodies, but it was pieces of bodies. I knew it! Police oh. showed up and arrested him. And he had quite a story to tell. He was a postgraduate student, and he had shot and killed a classmate of his the day before, according to Vice. After eating portions of her body, he tried to dump the corpse in the remote lake. Witnesses saw him and called the police. He was arrested. According to reports, Sagawa uttered the following to the French police who raided his home. Quote, I killed her to eat her flesh. Oh. Yeah. See, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to make this like a feminist thing or anything, but once again, a dude thinking that he just is entitled to have what he wants from a woman. And yeah, this is an extreme case, but so often it's like, I was rejected. I'm going to shoot up a school. I didn't get this. I was catcalling a chick and she rejected me. So I, whatever the, oh, yeah. Dudes, get it together. We're going to get into his reasoning here. Okay, in I'm sorry. And I'm no, sorry. It's, it's not too far off of what you're, you're saying, oh. but, but a little bit different. Sagawa was born in uh, April of 1949. He is also known as Pang, as in hunger pang, I guess. I don't know. Don't. It, no. On June 11th, 1981, this is according to Wikipedia, Sagawa, then 32, invited uh, his classmate, Rene Hartvelt, to dinner at his apartment under the pretext of translating poetry for a school assignment. Mm-hmm. Now, she was a Dutch student studying in Paris. Now, he had planned to kill her and eat her, having selected her for her health and beauty, characteristics that he believed that he lacked. He described himself as weak and ugly. He was, uh, I guess, about four foot nine inches tall, which is 1.4 meters. Claims he wanted to absorb her energy. Yeah, honey, that's not how that works. Mm, It doesn't. Unfortunately, that doesn't. Well, I don't know if it's unfortunate, but yeah, it's not quite that simple. Now, she was uh, 25 years old and about 5'10". He had tried to murder people before this. He He had selected women before this. Mostly sex workers who came to his apartment. He would hire a sex worker. She would come to the apartment. You know, they would do the thing. And uh, then when she would be in the bathroom cleaning up, he would get a gun. And he would walk up behind her, point the gun at her head. But then he said, I just couldn't pull the trigger. I I would freeze up. I couldn't do it. So he'd put the gun away. This happened time after time after time. It's gross on so many levels because one, he... Utilized her services first. Yes. So he was... Mm. You know, I don't like this guy. It's official. Well, you're going to like him even less. So I don't know how many sex workers he had pointed a gun at without them knowing and elected to not follow through on his urges. Right. But there were many. 
and he also had invited other classmates up prior to this, too, with mm-hmm. similar types of uh, results. So he invites her up. Same situation. She's getting ready for dinner. She's in the bathroom. She's washing her hands. He points the rifle at the back of her head. Again, he can't do it. Comes very close, Mm -hmm. but he couldn't do it again. He becomes frustrated with himself. He invites her back another time. This time, once she arrives, she began reading poetry at a desk with her back to him. He shoots her in the neck with a rifle. Sagawa later said that he fainted after the shock of shooting her but awoke with the realization that he had to continue to carry out his plan. He raped her corpse, but was unable to bite into her skin, so he left the apartment and bought a butcher knife. For two days, Sagawa ate various parts of her body, saving other parts in the refrigerator. He then took what was left over, put the pieces in suitcases, and took her body to the lake. Oh my God, this is so awful. He was seen in the act, arrested by French police. They made him open the suitcases. They did not like what they saw. Now, I'm sorry. I have questions. Yes. Okay. So he was Japanese. Yes. Studying in France. Yes. And he was in college? Postgraduate school. He actually ended up getting his PhD in Paris. I don't understand because he's obviously stunted. I mean, you cannot think these things. You cannot have these thoughts. And how can they coincide with someone who can get a PhD? I don't understand how that those two things can live in the same space. It's it's hard to understand that. But many people who are accused of horrific crimes like this have extremely high intellect. Ted Bundy. Well, yeah, but that's a different kind of like Ted Bundy's was getting his gross needs met. This guy has like bizarre Mm. thoughts about what those actions will bring him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's weird and gross. I get what you're saying. I mean, it's just weird. Yeah. Sagawa's family was wealthy. His father was very wealthy, provided him with uh, one of the best attorneys he could find Mm -hmm. for his defense. Entitled. He was held for two years awaiting trial. During that time, he was found legally insane and unfit to stand trial by a French judge, who then ordered him held indefinitely in a mental institution. Because of his fancy lawyering, Mm -hmm. they got him released to a Japanese hospital to be held there. Mm -hmm. Now, again, he had not been committed of anything other than they had determined that he was insane and unable to, to, uh, he was unfit to stand trial. Okay. So the fancy lawyer guy got him transferred to a Japanese hospital. At the Japanese hospital, they determined that he was sane. And And because he hadn't been charged with anything, he he was released. He signed himself out and walked out. No! He is still free to this day. This was in 1986. That's disgusting. I know. Now, the French court documents had been sealed and not released to the Japanese authorities, so they didn't even really know what was going on. He could not be legally detained in Japan, So he just checked himself out on August 12th, 1986, and remains free to this day. Now, of course, his continued freedom has been widely criticized. Well, uh, yeah. However, between 1986 and 97, he was frequently invited to be a guest speaker and commentator. He appeared in films. I'm sorry, based on his education or? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. He also appeared in uh, sadosexual voyeur films. He has written books about his kill. And profited from them. Yep. He's also written, are you ready for this? No. Restaurant reviews. 
Yep. For a Japanese magazine called Spa. Gross. But then the word started getting out about him and he can't find work anymore. But oh, I'm looking good. I'm looking at his uh, profile in Wikipedia and under uh, occupation, it says public speaker, actor, writer, commentator, cannibal murderer. That's what it says. Are you kidding me? No. I'm sorry. I just can't help but think that that his frustrations with not being good enough were what he says led him to doing this in the first place. And now he's unemployed and probably is going to have some insecurities bubble up every Mm. once in a while. So does that just mean that he's allowed to roam about the Japanese countryside murdering women? No, he's, he's found a way to control it. In 2011, Vice Magazine actually interviewed him. And in the interview, he says that if he... If he ejaculates frequently, then the urge to kill and eat women is held in control. Yeah. So here's the Vice Magazine interview. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can find it for yourself. But here's his explanation. Here's what he said. I was physically weak from the moment I was born. My legs were so skinny they looked like pencils. It was in the first grade, and again, this is Vice Magazine. It was in the first grade of elementary school when I saw the quivering meat of a male classmate's thighs and suddenly thought, hmm, that looks delicious. But I'm not homosexual. So from around that time I entered junior high school, I became obsessed with the Western actress Grace Kelly, an obsession that lasted right through high school. That was the beginning of my infatuation with Occidental people. Before I knew it, tall, healthy-looking Western women became the trigger for my cannibalistic fantasies. I guess my infatuation with such women stemmed from the fact that I was short and ugly and had an inferiority complex and therefore sought women who were the exact opposite of myself. Eventually, I began feeling a strong desire to bite into them, not to kill them or to eat them per se, but merely to gnaw on their flesh. It was purely a form of sexual desire. It wasn't like I felt like eating someone every time I was hungry. But you know how you tend to feel a stronger sexual desire when you've eaten a full meal? No. No, I I don't understand that that at all. That is 100% not the case. It's completely the opposite. I am tired and sluggish and I want you to leave me alone. (laughs) You've made that clear abundantly. I'm chock full of pasta. Back up off me. That's when I'd start feeling the urge to eat a girl after he'd eaten a full meal. It's absurd, right? He says, in essence, it's different from the type of hunger that people experience for food. The cannibalistic urge where I'm going, I want to eat human meat, is a sort of sexual appetite. So if I don't make sure that I ejaculate frequently enough, the desire only gets stronger and stronger. This goes on for freaking pages. No, I can't imagine that anyone would publish that. And I do appreciate a lot of what Vice does, but that just seems so gross. And I can't, like... And it's it's different from the original motive. Like it didn't he didn't say anything in this article about getting gross powers from someone. It goes on and on and on about that, though. He does. Yeah. Yeah. It goes on for friggin pages. The guys. Yeah. I mean, he stated that it was the opposite of what he was. But I don't understand how he thinks that he would garner powers. I'm not impressed. And I just I can't help but think that. Like like we talked about before, there's that, that sense of entitlement. Like, I want to feel satiated in this way. And so 
you have to provide me with that. And sometimes that means that you're killing someone, that you're taking someone's life away from them so that you can get your rocks off. And that's just, it's the ultimate gross. It's gross on so many levels. And the fact that he's just walking around. He's just out there. And why would anyone think that was a good idea? Like, even his lawyer. Hello. I mean, you're obviously good at lawyering. Maybe he wants lawyer skills. Are you concerned about your jiggling thighs? When you're defending him in court, maybe wear baggy pants. I'm just saying. Yeah. So there you go. Sorry it was a downer, but uh, sometimes we get a little dark here. No, I mean, it's it's fascinating. It's interesting. It's, you know, people's brains are incredible. It's yep. just that... Uh, it's such a, a pervasive issue that shows its ugly face on so many levels. Just that, that sense of entitlement. And it just, well, it tends to get me a little jacked up. I understand. It does me as well. My question is, did the magazine who hired him to do restaurant reviews know that he was a cannibal? Was that just kind of a cute idea on their part? Or were they horrified when they found out that their restaurant review guy had killed and eaten a woman? I suppose I've seen worse things for selling magazines. Well, I guess maybe. I'm I'm sure there probably is. Man, you had a lot of cannibal stories. Yeah, a lot of cannibal stories. But please keep in mind, let's put it in context. 500 episodes over five years. That's true. Uh, But yeah, that guy. Wow. And he was a restaurant critic. Well, this has been fun. Oh, well, I hope so. A little walk down memory lane. (laughs) I think we're just about done with our food prep. So we're going to put that in the fridge and uh, the pie is baking. I love the smell of a fresh pie being baked. I'm so glad. I'd never made an apple pie until we got together. Because you love an apple pie. And so I learned how to do it because I don't like pie. I still don't understand how you could not like pie. I like pudding pie, but it's it's pudding. It's pudding with crust. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess those differences are what keep our relationship interesting. That's right. We've stayed together this long because of pie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good pie. <laughs> anyway, thanks for joining us for this uh, interesting Thanksgiving Uh, special. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. (laughs) Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2022 All rights reserved Hello everyone, it's here And I'm Gabby And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. 
It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.